Take your copy of God's Word, if you have it, turn to Job chapter 3. Job chapter 3. On this happy Sunday, what has been historically called the most depressing chapter in the entire Bible. This is God's word written for you today. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. The stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why? Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse, for then I would have lain down and been quiet? I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver? Why was I not as a hidden stillborn child? As infants who never see the light. There the wicked cease from troubling and there they are sorry, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there. The slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not and dig for it more than hidden treasures? who who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden from God, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest. But trouble comes. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would use this, your word. It's reading and it's preaching. 
For the good of your saints and for your glory we ask in Christ Jesus. Amen. I think we're all familiar with that common illustration. Interestingly, it's actually doubted that it actually was the original study done, but the illustration of the frog in the boiling water. That if you dump a frog in boiling water, obviously it's going to know it's hot and jump out, but if you slowly heat the water and slowly, slowly, slowly turn it up, eventually the frog cooks to death before it knows that it should be concerned. I think we're all familiar with that idea, familiar with that concept, and I think in many times are rightly quick to apply that to our lives. I do sometimes wonder, though, that even as we think of those ideas and think of that warning, think of the concern that we might have over that slow creeping infiltration of false thinking, that it sometimes even blinds us to the fact that We have those glaring faults and and struggles, those glaring failings, but sometimes are blinded to see them. We would reject those false ideas, those false theologies, those false realities if we saw them in black and white. But we embrace them when we see them in shades of gray. And I I think one of the great illustrations of of that great reality of of a a falsehood we would reject if we saw it clearly, but we embrace because we don't, I think is the modern American church's understanding of suffering. When it comes time to process a chapter like Job chapter 3, I don't think the American church tends to get it right. By that, I don't mean that we, we understand the scripture. I think we do. I think it's more of we wrongly apply it to our lives. Job is so far in the book uh, portrayed as a holy man. Even to the point where he is stated twice that God explains he did not sin. I mean, what a great thing. You know you've done well when God himself is like, he didn't sin. The Lord has held him up before the angels, even before the devil as his holy and righteous child. And the devil has, as the great accuser, uh, accused Job of confusing God with his good gifts. He has said it's easy to love you, God, when we are blessed beyond measure. When it doesn't cost us anything. When it doesn't demand from us anything. When our lives are filled with ease and with joy, it's easy to worship you. It's easy to love you. And certainly the the devil is on to something here, isn't he? So it makes him so devious is that he's making actually a great point. The problem is it doesn't apply to Job. (laughs) The Lord allows and ordains the devil to take everything from Job. Well, most everything. 
In one day, he takes the entirety of Job's wealth, and he was the richest man in his country. He takes the ten children that were the the joy and delight of his eyes. Shortly after, he takes his health, leaving him alive but wishing he weren't. And the ultimate challenge, he doesn't take his wife. Thank you for getting the joke, those four chuckles. (laughs) That is what it is. You realize, though, that... Uh, It's interesting how uh, Job's friends and Job's wife are actually able to be far more effective at challenging his thinking than the devil ever actually is. Uh, That is a point to take away and file away, that his friends and his wife are far more effective than the devil. But it's interesting here in chapter 3 as we arrive at the opening of it, we have a man who just recently has lost all of his children, ten children, Lost all of his wealth. Lost his health. He's sitting in an ash heap, which most likely he's sitting in, a, uh, in the dump, right? He's sitting on top of a trash pile. His flesh is so bad it's described as rotting away that he's taking pot shards, you know, bits of pottery to try to scrape it to, to keep the itching under control and to get away any of the dead and rotting skin. Point one, I would like for us to contemplate is uh, that it is important that Christians not mistake, and I think this is one we do regularly, that we not mistake worldly stoicism for biblical self-control. All right, he used a word that some may not know, stoicism. Stoicism was a movement that came out of really Greece and Rome. Rome is what popularized it the most. But it was the idea that you, you didn't express emotion, that you, you didn't really, if you could, have emotion, but that everything was to maintain a sense, an, an air of dignity, an air of peace, an air of calm, and an air of control. This would later be picked up in the Victorian era in the UK with the idea, again, of it is not dignified to show emotion. And if you read Jane Austen, for those of you that love that, I, I can't stand it, but those of you that love it, it's that so much of what she's writing about of trying to manufacture as much emotion as she can with none of it showing on the surface, which is why I can't tolerate it. Those that you love it, good for you. You're better readers than I am. I do think, though, as so much of this country's culture was shaped by the UK, and you can kind of really trace a line back, we've adopted in many cases, and particularly in the Anglo culture, we have adopted this idea of stoicism, that it's not dignified for us to show emotion. I mean, again, think about the idea of what, what is masculine and how uh, we don't verbalize our, our, our feelings. We don't tell people that we love them. We're not expressive with that. It is, I think, a, a, a big part stoicism. And I think that even further, this has then been adopted into the church as the idea of what it means to be godly when we suffer is that when we encounter great loss and and great sorrow and great sadness, we have things said like, well, you you have to have that kind of stiff upper lip. You can't fall apart. That's not what Christians do. 
We're, we're not allowed to, to be that kind of over-the-top expressive sort of Christian. And in fact, actually, I've actually heard Job chapters 1 and 2 being the proof that is argued for that behavior set, which I always love because it means they didn't read the rest of the book. Job chapters 1 and 2, when he encounters the difficulty, he gives two of the most beautiful responses I think probably ever delivered from the human heart. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. It's the Lord. Who are we to complain when he gives us difficulty, when he has given us so much goodness? Who are we to complain? His responses are elegant, they're lovely, they're robust, they they are absolutely beautiful. But we haven't hit the part yet where Job, I think, begins to sin. We haven't hit the part yet where Job is over speaking against his God. We have now the, the follow-up to those first two responses. Whereas in 1 and 2, his immediate response is to, you know, to tear his clothes and to put ashes on his head and to go and to weep and to, and to worship God. Now we see the long-term pain set in and he gets expressive. And I want to make sure that we as Christians have a category in our mind for those that grieve vocally. Again, can you imagine a situation like this where, you know, perhaps a, uh, a man joins our church next year. He's with us for two or three or four years. And uh, then all in the same week, all of his children die and he loses his job and all of his wealth. First off, we, I imagine most of us would be uncomfortable with even going how to talk to him. But if we did, you know, sit down with him and process in his living room and he comes out with chapter three, what, what are we going to do? Well, I guarantee most of you, if you were sitting there and he pours out chapter three to you, you're on the phone with me saying, at what point do I call the ambulance to get him locked up so he doesn't harm himself? We don't have a category for this deep-seated grieving of loss. And you know what? We need to. We need to understand that it's okay to verbalize. It's okay to talk about those feelings and fears. It's okay for us to be expressive. I think for me, it's probably the area where we see Jesus as his most human. Where when he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes to his disciples and he says, in essence, I need your encouragement. I need you to stay up and pray with me. Of course, they can't do it. They're a mess. And you have this portrait of him going before God and grieving what he knows will happen the next day so robustly that the capillaries in his skin begin to burst. I've only known one person that's ever had anything like that happen before. They were in Peru, they got food poisoning, and the vomiting was so violent she burst all the capillaries in her eyes. I'm going to tell you right now, that is a level of angst I want 
no knowledge of, right? That's a level of vomiting that I never want to be a part of. I also know that that's a level of grieving that Jesus went through and an expression, a, a deep and rich and just fullness of feeling that it worked itself out in his body. We don't have to, I mean, can you imagine that? If, if Peter had walked up to Jesus and just been like, look, Jesus, you've got to have a stiff upper lip, man. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. You've just got to live with it. Roll with the punches. Job opens his mouth and curses the day of his birth. There's three real movements within the text. Verses really 1 through 10, 11 through 19, and then the wheels come off in verse 20. Uh, Verses 24 through 25 are almost unintelligible. Uh, The grammar mistakes are so full. He's falling apart. Verses 3 through 10, this first section, he focuses on cursing the day of his birth. He curses his birthday, even at one point asking that it would be forgotten from the calendar. It would be like somebody saying, I I wish that my birthday would be like February 30th. It just didn't exist. You couldn't celebrate it because it's not there because of the level of hurt and heartache and difficulty and loss of suffering that has descended into his heart. Let the day perish on which I was born. Let that day be darkness. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. You see his his verbiage, he's begun to embrace the idea of light and dark, and you can tell which one he feels. This is not a man who feels like he's walking in the light. This is a man who feels like he's trapped in the darkest of dark. Let that night, verse 6, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Again, that's your February 30th illustration. Let, Let my birthday just be forgotten. I think there's an important lesson that we learn here. The Lord never guarantees that we're going to skip out on pain. He never guarantees that Christians get a pass from difficulty. He only guarantees that He will walk with us through it. He never guarantees that we as Christians, the moment that we are converted, that we get a pass to dodge the curse. It's not like in Genesis 3, God curses all of creation except for those that are redeemed in Jesus after they are converted and are being sanctified. Then they get to dodge the curse. But it is intriguing how this is one of those ideas that when you say it in that stark black and white sort of version, that everybody goes, well, I know, I understand that, Michael, obviously. 
But it is amazing how, how quietly and how sneakily it creeps into the back of our mind that we think things like anytime something bad happens, it's because God is mad or because God does not love me. It's one of, I think, the most nasty forms of this theology uh, that I have seen worked out in the PCA more times than I can count PCA churches where people say, I call it open door theology, (laughs) where we use our circumstances to evaluate wisdom and to evaluate God's love. I must have obviously been in the will of God because things went well. I would contend that there's probably not a man in the scriptures that's more in the will of God after the fall than Job, and his life is terrible. Again, chapters 1 and 2, he is three times, uh, twice after his world falls apart, but once before, where the, the Lord says, look, this is my holy man. He's righteous. He's blameless. He is one that I'm going to boast in. And again, to think about God boasting in his children's success. And yet his world is awful at this point. I I, I just cannot imagine the level of hurt and heartache. I was uh, reading a biography of John Owen just two weeks ago. And John Owen and his wife, if you don't know the name of John Owen, John Owen's an English theologian. Uh, I think perhaps probably one of the like maybe 10 or 15 greatest minds in church history. Uh, He's notoriously difficult to read because we think, as best we can tell, he thought in Latin but wrote in English, as best we can tell. So his grammar's a little wonky. Um, He and his wife had 11 kids. Uh, Ten of them died in infancy, and the 11th died the year after she got married. Never had any grandkids. His uh, gene pool died out um, because uh, 11 times, and the Lord never gave them. I was like, man, what, what... What loss. And it's amazing how quickly in our minds we jump to things like, well, the circumstances were bad because he was doing something wrong. Maybe he wasn't in God's will. Maybe it, no. (laughs) Christians aren't spared the consequence of the curse. And it's funny how we understand that as our bodies age, as we wake up in you know, mornings and realize we pulled something in our sleep and we have no idea how, what we did while we were sleeping to do that, but my goodness, does it hurt. We're not spared the curse and we understand that when it comes to our bodies deteriorating, but we do not process it well when it comes to difficulties that so many times are external to us. We've been told the lie that Christianity is only about happiness. It's only about puppies and sunshine and rainbows and unicorns, and it's not equipped to handle difficulty. If you don't believe me, go back and look at the history of hymn books. You realize back in the time when Owen and others were uh, having children and watching them all die before them, their hymn books were filled with hymns for loss. They were filled with hymns that helped us process the death of our children. And as our medicine has improved, and I would say as the American church has weakened, our hymn books have phased out all of the hard hymns 
the ones that demand our hearts to change. There's one in the RUF group that um, the RUF out of uh, Belmont sings that's one of my favorites. It's called I Ask the Lord. And the, the concept of it, of the hymn is, I ask the Lord that I would grow. And he answered my prayer by giving me pain on every side. And he loves me so much he gave it. Those hymns aren't in the hymn book right now. <laughs> I remember uh, Kevin Twitt, the, the gentleman who helped write the tune for that, uh, when we went to sing that at GA maybe a decade ago, he said, uh, this is a hymn you never find in PCA churches anymore because PCA churches can't sing hymns like this because we don't believe them. We have fallen prey to this prosperity gospel that thinks somehow we've dodged a bullet. And somehow, because we have God's affection placed upon us, that we don't get to feel the curse or that somehow we're greater than Jesus. His ministry was perfected. It was completed in suffering. Why would my world be any different than him? Am I better off than the Lord Christ? You see, what Job is doing here in chapter 3, and this is part of this emotional turmoil for us, Job is joining in and agreeing with the curse in Genesis 3. He is in essence saying, though, in a much more emotional and uh, less kind of intentionally theological fashion, he's saying, Lord, you, you cursed the world in Genesis 3 because sin entered in. And as I feel those effects of sin in my heart and in my mind and in my body, I join in and agree with your curse. Sin is terrible. That's bad. I mean, that's a hard section of Scripture. I would love to say it gets better after this. Unfortunately, in the next section, it's even worse. Because verses 3 through 10, he curses his birthday over and over and over again. In verse 11 through 19, he kind of turns it up a little bit and now begins to long for death. Now, no longer wishing his birthday hadn't happened or such like that. It's now actively seeking his own end. Why didn't I die? When I was born, why wasn't I stillborn? Why was it that my mother actually fed me so I didn't die of starvation? Why wasn't I, verse 16, like a miscarriage, a child that died in utero and never saw light? Why isn't I have to live now and I can't die? Now, I would like to make a, a particular note here just to kind of catch your ear is Job's not suicidal. He's not here a man who's talking about how he's going to take his own life. Instead, he's acknowledging that life belongs to God and God has still continued his. In fact, actually, I, I think this is the outworking of that first point where you know, the Lord never guarantees that we're going to skip pain. He walks with us through it. The consequence is that it changes how we see life and death. 
It, it reshapes our perspective on life and death where Job now understands that life is one that is filled with pain. It's filled with heartache. It's filled with difficulty. And death is a different thing. For him, death becomes transformative. It's the place where difficulty is taken away. It's the place that pain and hurt and heartache cannot follow for God's people. I've met two people who taught me this lesson in my life, both holy men. First, his name was Lynn Hespenhide. Lynn Hespenhide was a deacon in the church in Atlanta that I worked at off and on for a decade. And uh, Lynn had some medical complications, and when he was first diagnosed with him, his wife left him, his job fired him, and he got converted all in the space of about six weeks, I think. Um, when the wife left, she took the kid, and basically he, he lost literally everything in the space of two months. But he gained Jesus. And the result was that he viewed life very differently than uh, than I did. And when I first met him, I think I was 19 years old when I first met Lynn. And I remember you'd talk with him and he would say, hi, I'm Lynn Hespenhide. How are you? He said, I'm doing all right. How are you, Lynn? He goes, I'm ready to die. <laughs> and it was a little off-putting the first time you heard it. I mean, that's the one where you go back and you call the pastor. And I've done this where I call the pastor and be like, do we, do you know what's going on with Lynn? Do we need to have, like, somebody come check on him? Like, is he going to... And every time, their laughter. No, he's fine. He just understands that the life to come is, is actually far better than the present life. And he disagrees with God's assessment as to when his home going is going to be. Stu Styling was the second... For those that don't know that name, Stu is an elder here. He was an elder here when I was called to be the pastor. Uh, he asked me um, the only question I received in my actual interview to become the pastor of this church. Uh, when I went and met with the session, the only question I got from the entire session was, can you preach a good funeral? Because I hope mine as soon as you get here. <laughs> Again, is it? snot-nosed 28-year-old kid. I didn't have a category, again, for a man who saw life and death differently than me. But there's a good lesson to be learned there because what, again, I was, had slipped into thinking is that there's this really clever lie that the devil tells us that this is all there is. And so we have to cling to it as tightly as possible because this is all there is. And if you don't live it now, you'll never get chance to. You have to cling to it now. And again, what Lynn taught me and what Stu taught me is that's a lie. In fact, actually, we have the great privilege as Christians to live our lives uh, with an open hand. That's what this middle section Job is doing is he's, he's disagreeing with God and saying, Lord, I don't want to be here anymore because I know what comes after is better. But it's not up to me to be the one who decides that. 
I don't get to be the one who chooses when I'm born or when I die. That's not within my jurisdiction. That's within yours because you're the mighty God, but I'm ready to go home. Friends, it is extremely important, extremely important that we as a church develop a category where it's okay for Christians to think this way. To long for the life to come. Now, it's wrong to act on that negatively. can't harm yourself. But it's okay to be ready to go. It's okay to live our lives with an open hand. I I think probably for me at least, that's been one of the things that has been exposed the most strongly for me with the coronavirus and the, the pandemic and all of the precautions that have come with it is it has showcased how much our country and our culture has fallen in love with the idea of safety. And the reason why we've fallen in love with the idea of safety is because we've fallen in love with the idea of life right now. I I saw an interview with one actor this last week or the week before last, and uh, he said that he no longer believed in death. He no longer believed in death. He thought it was a, a false reality. And I laughed at that one. I'm like... Oh, man. You'll figure that one out shortly. We as a nation have become so uh, in love with being alive. We've clung to our lives so tightly that now we're, we're manufacturing any attempt that we can to maintain that life. It's been intriguing to see the rhetoric that so many of the news sources and media have taken up this conversation about. The way that it's speaking of all of the coronavirus, talking about like human sacrifice. Really? We need to be able to live our lives like this. Knowing that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and there's nothing I can do to prevent that, really. It's better to agree with God, be ready, than not. Lastly, I will end with this in terms of points. I'll give you two applications shortly after. This final section, verses 20 through 26, is this is just Job's groaning. He, he just falls apart here. Like I said, the, the wheels kind of come off. He begins to lose, I think, probably rational thought. The last three verses, again, there's so many grammar mistakes that the translators really kind of work the text hard to get it to make any sense for you in your English. It's why if you compare different English translations, so many of them are, are so broad because Job is he's so distraught that his words don't make sense anymore. He's crying out in grief. Why is light given to the one who is in misery? Why is life given to the one who is bitter in soul? The one who longs for death, but it will not come. The one who longs for the grave. Man, that is rough. 
Verse 23, I love how he acknowledges this. Why is he still alive? (laughs) Because the Lord has hedged him in. Job's like, I want to die, but I can't, God, because you are the one that's actively keeping me alive right now. You have your protective hands around me, so I can't end. And again, I love how this, it just reminds us of these groanings. They're, they're so deep that it's almost like, humanly, they're almost unknowable in that sense. It's hard to articulate. But I love that it, it explains and reminds us that we have a mediator who understands. He, Hebrews 4 tells us that uh, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who's in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. We have a high priest, Jesus, who is fully human. I love how even in this situation, you have Job who's so distraught that he begins to lose control of his language. And what a portrait of Jesus again in the garden. The Lord Christ is able to say, I absolutely understand. (laughs) Only his Mourning is not past tense, it's future tense because he knows what he's going to endure the next day. I love how Romans 8 explains it. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies, this deep-seated longing and, and, and acknowledgement of how the world is not right. And I would say for those of us, some of us in the room are not wired to feel this way very often, namely because our emotions are, are either not as... Uh, strong, or we verbalize them differently, or we process them differently. Some of us are just built to be uh, happier at times. Whatever reason, none of those matter. There are, however, some of us that this is our daily life. That the way in which we're built on the inside by God's mercy, we understand uh, the failings of the world. We understand the curse in a much richer and deeper and more passionate and painful way than most. And I would acknowledge to you, that's okay. Yes, okay. Doesn't mean you're broken in that regard. It does, however, give you opportunity to contemplate the beauty of our Savior that He knows. He knows. All right, very quickly, I'm just give actually three applications very quickly. One, be ready. We still live under the curse. Some of us, passages like this are hard because our lives are easy. Our lives are good. Children, I would say most likely this is your category. Praise God for most, most kids, you know, their lives, at least in the world in which we live, the kids in this church, their lives are filled with joy. And I would say be ready. Suffering is going to happen. You live under the curse the same way that we do. You don't believe me? Talk to one of the aging saints in the room and ask them how their body feels and they'll be able to tell you. Hips hurt, knees hurt, backs hurt, and everything hurts. Be ready. We still love under the curse. 
Suffering will come. Second is the same point kind of in the last week's sermon where the challenge with this, all of it, is to, it's to strip away all of those self-medications so that we look at the actual comforter himself. That's the implied background of chapter 3 of all of Job's processing is Job's not just processing out in the ether. He's not just processing in the abstract. He's processing it within the context of, Lord, you are my comforter and you're not helping me yet. I'm not dead and I want to be. You haven't made this situation right yet, and I want it to be, and oh God, you're my help. And what he, it's the implied backdrop to all of this is he's processing with God. And I would say for all of us, is as we have our struggles come and these challenges come, it, it challenges us to think about removing those self-medicating pleasures that we have, to think about our God. And then lastly, and this is perhaps to me the most important, is uh, there is a wisdom to be had in matching our response to the event. Job's chapter 3 is brutal. We have a guy who begins by cursing his birthday. The middle of his thought is, I wish I were dead now. And the final thought of it is, Lord, please take me home now, so much so that he begins to lose grammar. I think this is an appropriate response for a guy who just lost his 10 kids, who just lost everything he owns, and is stuck with a wife who's actually encouraging him to sin. This is probably not the right response for a father who stepped on a Lego when he went to tuck his kids in. (laughs) It might feel like it, but it's probably not the right response. And there is something to be said for being wise in our, uh, measured in our response to save it. Because realistically, if the church goes to this response for every struggle, what happens? Well, then you lose any sense of scale and every struggle is ah, end of the earth kind of big. What happens when you do lose your 10 kids? What's options left for you then? That's no good. So may it be that through all of this, we we recognize that God is at work. (laughs) He's sanctifying his people using even that great thing called misery, which I hate. But he uses with perfect fatherly wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, even this most difficult of chapters. Whew, what a chapter. We bless you, though, that even though the chapter is difficult, uh, your word is perfect and you use it perfectly. Fill us with Christ, we ask in his name. Amen.